Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Two thousand and twenty-one is the centenary of the foundation of the Communist Party of Canada. If there's any discussion of this in the mainstream media, it's not uh, likely to be of much use. And for its part, the, uh, the tale that the CP's leaders tell about their own history is, in many ways, inaccurate and politically unhelpful for socialists today. So, joining me to discuss the history of the Communist Party of Canada is Brian Palmer, a leading socialist historian in Canada and author of many books. Welcome to Victor's Children, Brian. Well, thank you for inviting me. So when the Communist Party was founded in May of 1921, it united initially most revolutionary socialists east of Manitoba. And then by early 1922, when supporters of the Communist International or Comintern in the Western provinces had left the Socialist Party of Canada and joined the CP, this unity became Canada-wide. But by the end of the 1920s, the Communist Party had changed enormously, both in terms of its politics and in terms of the personnel who were leading it. So can you give us an overview and explain how the politics and leadership of the party changed in those years in the 1920s and why they changed? Yeah, I think that's a pivotal question to start with. And um, I think what, to answer it, I'd like to go back just a bit to 1917 and the, and the actual Russian Revolution, which was a world historic event that established the first uh, you know, beginnings of a workers' republic, and it really sort of transformed so much in the sort of political culture of the time. Um, but what we have to understand about that revolution was how difficult it was to sustain it, and the very unfortunate circumstances in which it came into being. Um, the first point I suppose to to start with is that you know socialists from uh, the time of Marx on forward had thought that you know, a revolutionary possibility for working class transformation would be built in the advanced capitalist countries. Russia was not uh, at that level. It, it did contain uh, advanced levels of production, but it was also a peasant-dominated economy. That's point number one. And point number two is this revolution happened at the most uh, um, inauspicious time. It was a time of war. Uh, and uh, in during the, you know, when the revolution was made in 1917, uh, really, they, they were fighting on two fronts, one to transform the uh, internal uh, sort of class relations of the society. The second point, they were fighting on fronts uh, during World War One. And after the war ended, uh, the mobilized uh, and armed forces of the capitalist nations of the world turned against uh, the newly established Soviet state. Um, all of this uh, meant it was extremely difficult to build uh, uh, socialism to transition towards communism. And uh, there were, of course, internal enemies of the regime, not only on the right, uh, the Cossack or uh, white forces, but also on the left among anarchist socialist revolutionaries and others who'd been used to fairly combative relations with, with groups like the Bolsheviks. Um, so all of this meant that there was uh, really a conservatizing impulse that reached into the 
1920s in terms of the creation of uh, um, a new socialist order. And, you know, unfortunate attempts on the part uh, of uh, the Bolsheviks to basically fend off enemies of the left, some of whom actually tried to assassinate people like Lenin, uh, which consolidated, a, 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 in, in a sense, a, a repressive uh, apparatus within the, uh, within the new regime that was, I think, necessary, but uh, um, unfortunate. Um, all of this produced by the early 1920s, uh, conservatizing impulses, uh, um, difficulties uh, that were exacerbated by, for instance, Lenin's death in January of 1924, and conditioned the rise of someone like Stalin, who was an apparatchik, a bureaucrat, uh, who had uh, really immense talents in consolidating around him a layer of, of hand raisers and uh, um, and uh, sycophants. Combine that with the fact that the genuine uh, left him, you know, uh, elements within the Bolshevik uh, uh, experience were very reluctant to criticize someone like Stalin because he was consolidating an apparatus that seemed necessary to get over some of these hurdles. Um, various oppositions, left oppositions, workers' oppositions were uh, opposed to Stalin, but in some senses were suppressed first slowly and then more vociferously by him. By the late 1920s, by 1929, Stalin was very much in control. Uh, many of the old uh, 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 left forces had been marginalized. Trotsky had been uh, sort of brushed aside and eventually exiled to Siberia. People like Victor Serge were on the run. Uh, and so as the Soviet Union entered the 1930s with all the uh, sort of uh, um, positive uh, uh, sort of stature and credibility among the world's uh, revolutionary forces. It was moving towards a very, very conservative and indeed reactionary uh, set of positions. So that provides some international context. Can you talk about the Communist Party of Canada's political evolution then in the 20s? In now, relation to what's going on in, in the Communist International? Yeah, as you said in the beginning question, you know, I think what was of fundamental importance was after the, the Russian Revolution of 1917, and especially in underground socialist movements around from 1919 to 1921, and then with the formation of the Communist Party of Canada in the early 1920s, Revolutionary forces that rallied to the best elements and to the best uh, uh, sort of set of possibilities uh, that the socialist movement could harness joined the Communist Party. And it really did play a fundamental role as other tendencies like the uh, uh, revolutionary syndicalists in the One Big Union movement or the industrial workers of the world or uh, the militant minority in uh, craft unions that had rallied around socialist possibility. As these gravitated to the Communist Party, it became a real force. Uh, Tim Buck could actually galvanize in his, uh, who was the leadership leader of, of the Communist Party of Canada by the mid-1920s, could actually galvanize uh, approximately a quarter, 25% of the delegates uh, voting on who would be 
the president of the mainstream Trades and Labor Congress of Canada. This is in stark, I think, uh, um, uh, contrast to what would be the situation for revolutionaries later, even in the 1940s and certainly uh, now. Um, also, the closer one was to that revolutionary upheaval of 1917 for all communist parties of the world, including Canada, the more radical, revolutionizing, innovative, uh, and sort of breaking of old molds uh, was possible. This is very evident in gender politics. Uh, you see, for instance, the attempts to address questions of sexuality uh, and what was called the woman's question. Uh, we would call it, we might call it social reproduction, issues of social reproduction today. Um, but there were a whole series of issues that in the 1920s were actually discussed in uh, the communist movement, including things like, um, you know, daycare, uh, freer and easier access to divorce, uh, sexual uh, um, uh, 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 practices that were outside the mainstream, like homosexuality. All of this was granted more leeway, more space for discussion in the 1920s than would be the case, for instance, in the 1930s or 40s after Stalinism consolidated a hold on the workers' movement um, and after things moved very decidedly in this conservative, broad conservatizing direction that I talked about. So in the 1920s, the Communist Party really was, uh, in Canada, uh, the, I would say the, the recognized center of the revolutionary forces in the workers' movement and beyond into other social movements where there were possibilities uh, for radicalism to sort of uh, um, basically, you know, break out of the, the, the boxes it had been contained in for so long. But by the end of the 1920s, the, through a factional you know, process, we have the establishment of a, of a leadership of the Communist Party that's very much loyal to the Stalinist leadership of the Comintern. Uh, so Tim Buck and company uh, you know, are, are at the helm and taking the Communist Party in a different political direction than it had had before. Uh, and we see beginning at the end of the 1920s, the adoption in Canada because of its adoption by the Comintern of this line of policy direction called the third period, you know, lasting until the early 1930s. So can you talk a bit about what the Communist Party of Canada did in that third period era and how what it did here in Canada was shaped by the Comintern's line? Yeah. Yeah, it's very important, I think, to, to recognize this periodization in communism, in, in, in the Stalinization of the Communist Party of Canada and of communist parties around the world. Um, just for you know, listeners who may not really understand the terminology, first period was, of course, the period of revolutionary upheaval associated with 1917 and its immediate aftermath. Then the Comintern said, well, we're in a, peer, a second period of capitalist stabilization, and then which, which stretched over the course of the 1920s for the most part. And Stalin declared late 1928, 1929, the ushering in of a third period, uh, one in which uh, capitalism would be in crisis, the revolutionary movements around the world would uh, uh, rise to power, and they would, would, and ha would have to be led by uh, the communist international, no other uh, left-wing forces. And the left it was still a, a fairly vociferous and divided and, and actually multi-layered uh, um, set of uh, movements and possibilities. Um, so the third period, and some may see this 
as uh, actually, you know, Stalin's uh, foresight. He predicted the the great the collapse and the Great Depression. In fact, when he actually ordered the, uh, orchestrated this turn towards the third period, no one had an inkling that capitalism was about to collapse. It had virtually nothing to do with understandings of the falling rate of profit and the, you know, the the emergence of uh, a new crisis in capitalism. It had far more to do with Stalin's uh, exercising of power, which was increasingly, uh, and and the declaration of the third period and subsequent developments were were established this increasingly one of simply dictating uh, to within to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and to the Communist Internationalists and its affiliated national sections. It was simply dictating that we are going to shift the line. We are going to change the perspective. You know, we've been in this holding pattern of the second period. Now we're going into this new period. Blood's going to flow in the streets. Communist movements will will uh, rise supreme. All other elements of the left are actual enemies, barriers to this happening, so that social democrats and were called social fascists and were, you know, basically eliminated, not to be worked with. The, 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 the trade union movement, which Lenin had articulated a policy of boring from within the mainstream unions to move the workers there and to push the bureaucracies there to the left and to revolutionary possibilities, that was jettisoned. Communists had to start their own red unions, which would be isolated, which would be militant, which would withdraw the unorganized into the, into, into the workers' movement. Um, all kinds of, of uh, work in anti-racist movements, et cetera, took on far more sectarian and isolating uh, kinds of tones and practices. And in fact, the ties that uh, the entire world communist movement had sought to build over the, over the course of the 1920s with women's groups, with ethnic uh, groups, with uh, racial, racialized communities, they were made more difficult, not less so, uh, because of this third period uh, sectarianism, adventurism, and isolation. Could you say a little bit about the Workers' Unity League in Canada? Yeah, the Workers' Unity League, uh, it, 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 and here comes the, the kind of balancing act that one has to you know, engage in when, when looking at the history and accomplishments of the communist movement. The Workers' Unity League was a reflection of this isolation and marginalization and movement into itself of the communist movement, rather than broadening out. Uh, and that was its, its uh, ultimate uh, downfall and its ultimate problem that it posed for building a mass uh, workers' movement of resistance. Um, but what the third period was also about was about a militant class against class perspective that had resonated positively with some Canadian workers, particularly workers who were locked out of the mainstream trade union movement because they lacked skill or they were on the margins uh, of, of, of various kinds of productive activities. And so uh, in the midst of a, of a catastrophic collapse of capitalism, which really cut the knee, the knee off at the knees, the mainstream workers' movement, and where strikes and militancy dropped precipitously in the early 1930s. It was the Workers' Unity League that organized, and some estimates are 
around 1932, as much as 90% of all strikes in Canada were actually Workers' Unity League-led. So there is a very positive side to uh, the communist experience in these years. Um, the negative side is that they tended to be isolated, cut off from the mainstream, and their uh, capacity to influence the broad masses of the working class greatly inhibited. Um, uh, you know, they did they did fight civil libertarian cases. Uh, communist leaders like Buck uh, and eight others were jailed uh, for seditious conspiracy in 1931, I believe. And they did mobilize, you know, labor defense uh, activities around precisely those kinds of uh, repressive uh, activities of the state. Um, so one cannot ever write off in this period uh, the, the communist movement, even as its Stalinization is increasingly uh, limiting its ultimate capacity to foment and foster revolutionary possibility. So, of course, this third period line led to the utterly disastrous experience in Germany of refusing to build a united front between the Communist Party and the Social Democrats to stop the fascists. Uh, and you have Hitler coming to power. And you know, this is a, leads to, in, in the mid-1930s, a dramatic change in the Comintern's line. So can you talk about the new line of the Popular Front and what did that mean in Canada for the activity of the Communist Party? Yeah, exactly. And and. Thanks for <laughs> drawing back my attention into this, into the international situation, because the decisive, I think, uh, failure of the third period sectarianism, adventurism and isolation of the communist international was brought home even to Stalin and to major figures in, Fr in, in France and elsewhere, people like Dmitriev. It, it, it was brought home that one of the major failures of the third period was that at precisely that moment that the communist international needed to be building unity to defeat uh, the rise of fascism and in particular the uh, emergence and consolidation of power in Germany uh, um, of Hitler and his uh, Nazi stormtroopers. Um, precisely that uh, uh, failure uh, led Stalin to do a fairly abrupt turn away from the third period. Now, the turn towards the popular front and away from the third period was in fact a little more gradual than the actual declaration coming from the Communist International in Moscow. It had been basically a breeding, if you will, inside the failures of the third uh, of the third period in Canada and elsewhere. So there were rank and file and even, you know, uh, leadership in, in Canada movements towards, uh, you know, half turns away from the, the, uh, the third period as early as 1933. But it really required, and this was a reflection of, of, the, of the vice grip that Stalin uh, had on the Communist International and its, its affiliated national sections. Uh, there, it really required the, the declaration from Moscow of a new turn. And that came ultimately in 1935 with a turn towards the Popular Front, which was, again, it wasn't that, you know, the Communist International learned so much and so adroitly from its failures of the third period that it then uh, moved into a, a far more nuanced and more 
more sophisticated and effective policy of building, you know, united fronts uh, and and not uh, that could actually fight uh, fascism, uh, build workers resistance, extend the movement into other, you know, uh, areas of social justice. No, instead of uh, the third period sectarianism, they said, okay, we're going to abandon basically all differences, uh, including fundamental class differences. We're going to build a popular front of all progressive forces, including aligning with elements of, of the bourgeoisie going into, and this is what the, where, you know, popular front governments where we would play a role as they did in, as they tried to do in France in 1936 of aligning with, uh, you know, bourgeois elements. Um, so the problem went from class against class, all out for struggle to, uh, well, let's make, you know, certain lots of concessions. Uh, let's not fight so hard. Let's, uh, um, you know, uh, build uh, mobilizations uh, that will, um, you know, uh, align us with bourgeois elements who, you know, for decades, the communist movement had been saying, and socialist movements have been saying, these are our enemies. And of course, fundamental to all of this was the decisive Stalinist shift that had taken place in the late 1920s, consolidated by 1928-29, of the movement away from world revolution uh, into what Stalin called socialism in one country. That is that the whole communist, the world's communist movements were not so much dedicated to building revolutionary possibility in Canada, uh, you know, in, in Indochina, uh, in Latin America. Instead, uh, the responsibility of communist movements around the world was to participate uh, in class struggle in ways that would build and consolidate and sustain socialism inside uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, it was loyalty, fealty, and adherence to Moscow that uh, and its project that became paramount. Right. So the the subordination of communist parties' activity to the foreign policy of the Soviet state under Stalin, uh, and here in in Canada you have, you know, an opening to the Liberal Party, right, um, as part of the Popular Front, the supposed representative of the progressive bourgeoisie. Yes, exactly. There was, you know, Mackenzie, you know, the, the, you know, it had been somewhat easy in the third period to go after a guy like R.B. Bennett, a millionaire uh, Canadian, you know, prime minister who thought that, you know, when Canada was precipitated into the depression, uh, well, really just people should pull themselves out of this up, up by their bootstraps. Um, but by the end of the 1930s, uh, the Communist Party was basically, you know, cuddling up to Mackenzie King. Uh, who hadn't really done that much to bring Canada out of any, uh, you know, global crisis that it was, you know, locked into. And in fact, King had had sympathies for the Nazi movement in, you know, in the in the uh, mid 1930s before the actual outbreak of war. He thought, well, you know, uh, Hitler's a powerful leader. He's making the trains run on time. The usual kinds of, uh, um, you know, uh, how should I put it? <laughs> sort of very uh, narrow-minded bourgeois understandings of what mattered in, in you know, social life. So, yes, they, they coddled up to uh, um, uh, Mackenzie King. And this, of course, extended, you know, into the 1940s with the declaration of war in 1939. Um, the Popular Front 
for Communists changed its name to the Democratic Front. And there were, again, Stalinist shifts in in uh, um, in uh, um, and zigzags in policy. Uh, the war was, you know, first declared it was an imperialist war. Uh, uh, you know, all communists should be against it. Then, again, very much to preserve socialism in one country, Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler, uh, the Nazi-Soviet pact, um, which shocked many communists. Um, but, you know, they were forced to rationalize it on the grounds that this was protecting the Soviet Union. Of course, any agreement with Hitler wasn't worth, you know, very much. Uh, Hitler soon uh, violated that uh, uh, um, uh, the Nazi-Soviet uh, pact and that agreement of non-aggression. And uh, then, of course, with uh, his armies threatening the Soviet Union uh, and uh, neighboring countries, Stalin, uh, of course, declared that, uh, you know, Hitler was the great enemy, and the war was now an anti-fascist war that, again, congruent with the Democratic Front, the Soviet Union and all forces supporting it, i.e. communist parties in Canada and elsewhere, had to align with their bourgeois governments to uh, basically oppose, oppose this war and, and, and fight fascism. Um, and the corollary of that in the workers' movement was that uh, the uh, the Communist Party in Canada was willing to basically sign uh, no-strike pledges with uh, corporations that they felt aligned with in the war effort. Even the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, which had been a, a force on the left and was growing over the over, over this period of time, uh, and that the communists were often opposed to. Um, even the CCF uh, basically pointed a finger at the Communist Party and said, you know, you claim to be radical, but here you are signing pacts with the bosses. Um, we're not going to do that. We're not going to sign a no-strike pledge in the midst of a war uh, where, yes, we are against fascism, but no, we are not willing to say the working class needs to pay the price. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth mentioning that the, the Communist Party went along with a great deal as part of this, uh, you know, all-out uh for the for the war effort, so that even in British Columbia, going along with the uh, expropriation and dispossession of uh, relocation of, of Japanese Canadians, um, yes, yeah, 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 that and and even in the electoral arena, often choosing not to run, uh, you know, Communist Party uh, candidates uh, in seats where liberals were threatened by conservatives. Again, it was a way of uh, basically aligning with. Uh, Mackenzie King and the Liberals, who were the governing party at the time, uh, and the and and the and the uh, the sort of major force politically uh, responsible for carrying out the war effort. But then, after the end of World War II, it wasn't very long before the Cold War broke out. Of course, between the U.S.-led Western powers and the USSR. So, could you talk a little bit about the Communist Party's stance? there and how the party was affected in the years that followed by Cold War anti-communism. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, this is, a, you know, the fact that when world, when the, when the actual hostilities of World War II ended and Hitler and fascism was defeated and the project of, you know, uh, European reconstruction began, uh, you know, no sooner had that happened, of course, then uh, those very bourgeois elements uh, and capitalist, uh, um, uh, you know, figures who had been 
in some senses aligned with the Communist Party in the war against fascism, turned on the Soviet Union. Uh, if Hitler had been the, 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 the main and decisive enemy during the World War II years, all of a sudden global communism uh, became uh, the main threat. And the, the, the project was one uh, now of defeating communism in the parlance of the time, the other totalitarianism. Uh, uh, uh. And so uh, communists who went from being uh, valuable as assets, uh, not so much allies, but as assets uh, in the war. And we should never forget as well that internationally, uh, and again, this is the mixed nature of Stalinism. Uh, you know, it was the Soviet Union and uh, Stalin's directed, you know, Red Army that defeated uh, uh, Hitler. If the, if the Soviet Union had not been fighting on those fronts, World War II could have ended up very, very differently. Um, so, uh, but from being basically a savior of capitalism. Uh, during World War II, uh, the Soviet Union became capitalism's number one enemy. And communists who had been tolerated in, various, in the arts, uh, in, in, in aspects of political culture, uh, they, could be ele- they, were off, they were elected. Uh, um, uh, a guy named Fred Rose federally was elected uh, to parliament. Uh, Joe Salzburg in Toronto was a kind of perennial uh, elected communist figure uh, in the Ontario legislature. These people became persona non grata. Uh, People like communist sympathizers like uh, Grierson at the National Film Board uh, tolerated. All these people became persona non grata. And there became, began, it was, of course, most evident and, 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 uh, um, and uh, and ugly in the United States McCarthyism, but Canada had its own variants of of the Cold War. Um, two cases can be cited. One, communists were basically driven out of the labor movement. They had exercised a fundamental role in a whole series of unions over the course of the late 1930s and into the 1940s, when trade unions were actually consolidating. Uh, collective bargaining rights and winning great victories. Communists played a key role in that. They were essentially driven out of the of the unions as the Cold War basically uh, infiltrated and contaminated uh, the labor movement. Secondly, uh, at other levels, they were hounded out of positions, even when uh, uh, their communism was actually non-existent. A figure like E.H. Norman, who had uh, been involved in the periphery of uh, the communist movement in, at Cambridge, I believe, in England when he was a student in the 30s, had risen up the ranks of the diplomatic corps of Lester, of Lester Pearson's liberal uh, government and had actually been a diplomat uh, in uh, Egypt, largely responsible for the resolution of the crisis around uh, the Suez Canal uh, and you know, and Nasser in 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 I think 1956, he was hounded by American McCarthyites, and, and who 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 pointed to him in the Canadian governing circles as a as a as a communist infiltrator. When of course he wasn't a communist by that period, uh, he ended up committing suicide suicide uh, in Egypt because of the 
repeated revelations and attacks on his character. Uh, so the Cold War uh, exercised a decisive influence in this period in Canada. And uh, because the Communist Party was driven underground, it had to change its name to the Labour Progressive Party. Uh, it could no longer act in the same uh, um, sort of open, above-ground ways that it had. Uh, because it was driven into retreat, not totally out of, but driven into retreat in the trade unions. Uh, you know, the whole tenor of politics uh, changed. Uh, and, uh, you know, the conservatizing impulse uh, that this had in the 1950s was palatable in a whole series, I think, of realms. Um, uh, from, you know, uh, women's place in society to uh, um, the the treatment of uh, immigrants coming from Eastern and Southern Europe uh, to racial issues. I mean, Paul Robeson was kept out of the country uh, in, 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 at, at some points. Uh, so uh, uh, you can't really underestimate the uh, extent to which, you know, the Cold War reconfigured uh, life in Canada uh, over the course of the very late 40s and 50s. So this takes us into the, the 1950s then, of course, um, where you have 1953, the death of Stalin, and 1956, the Hungarian Revolution against Stalinist rule there. So you have a, a real crisis in the communist movement connected to that and uh, the so-called secret speech by leader uh, Khrushchev in, in the USSR. Could you talk about those events in the 1950s and what their impact was on the uh, the communist party here? Yeah, at the same time that this Cold War was unfolding and driving communism in some senses underground and more and more as an inner circle of people, uh, Stalin's death in 1953 uh, led for a series of reassessments uh, within the Soviet Union uh, about just what his role had been. Um, and, it, you know, the, the, really the, the ugliness of Stalinism, which had been been actually fairly apparent for some time. Uh, you know, you can certainly trace it back to the 1930s and various uh, purge trials, Moscow, you know, Moscow trials that basically obliterated the entire uh, corpse of old Bolsheviks. Um, they continue, that kind of thing continued on. Uh, Stalin's uh, uh, great Russian chauvinism was uh, evident in anti-Semitic uh, um, developments. Uh, there were various, again, uh, show trials in uh, satellites of the Soviet Union that, that emerged and consolidated after World War II, places like Czechoslovakia. Uh, there was uh, um, Stalin's uh, doctor's plot uh, scenario in the early 50s, where some Jewish doctors were supposedly targeted for having you know, plotted to kill him. Uh, this unleashed, again, a, a, a animosities toward Jews that had been evident uh, in Stalin's uh, leadership in the Soviet Union since since the 1920s, really. Um, so all of this and the extent to which Stalin had cultivated what Khrushchev called a cult of the personality uh, emerged in revelations uh, in this so-called secret speech that Stalin gave, or pardon me, Khrushchev gave to the 20th Party Congress. Uh, in the Soviet Union. It wasn't so secret. It was leaked to the New York Times. 
Uh, it soon became, you know, common currency in world communist movements. And many figures, including Canadian communists who'd been to the Soviet Union, like Joe Salzburg, and had great, you know, discontents and fears and saw things they did not like. Uh, it was like a Pandora's box was open. Um, so at the same time that the Cold War is causing communists to retreat, uh, you know, and, 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 and to, in some senses, suppress their active involvements uh, in, in political culture and, and uh, political mobilizations by the 1950s, you're getting this, uh, these revelations and questionings about what Stalin had done, uh, causing people to demand change within the Communist Party of Canada, less adherence to the Soviet Union, less following of dictates from Moscow. Uh, more attention to Canadian problems rather than the defense of socialism in one country. All this is going on. And then it looks like there's going to be some reform possible. Uh, but then what happens in 1956, the same thing is going on in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Poland to some extent. And there's an uprising in Hungary, uh, actual uh, you know, uh, a, a major reform movement in which uh, the leader uh, says, well, we're going to have freer elections. We're going to begin to downsize uh, our dependence on the Soviet Union. We're getting, beginning to exercise more independence. This leads to massive mobilizations, workers' strikes, student uh, uh, um, uh, protests, and uh, people are in the street, you know, demanding uh, change. The Soviet Union, led by Khrushchev, which has essentially, you know, declared to the world that, okay, there's big problems with Stalinism and its repressive apparatus. They then turn around and send tanks into Hungary. Imar Neji, the, the leader of the Hungarian reform movement, who is the elected, uh, basically, leader of the country, is put in jail, later executed. Some 200,000 uh, Hungarians leave the country, uh, go into exile. Uh, this is a kind of statement to world communist movements. Okay, we didn't so much like what Stalin did. We want to pin a lot of the blame for what went on uh, in the Soviet Union on him and his corpse. Uh, but we are not really going to change very much in terms of the Stalinization of our movement and its repressive uh, sort of clamping down on dissidents and demands for uh, reform. This reverberates throughout the Communist Party in Canada over the course of 1956, 57 into 58. There's a mass exodus from the movement. Many Jews leave, uh, particularly in centers like Montreal, Winnipeg, and Hamilton, where uh, uh, Jewish communists had been a major, you know, uh, um, sustaining force in the communist movement. Uh, many uh, um, leading figures, uh, people like uh, Norman Penner uh, in Toronto or Robert Laxer, uh, these people leave the, the, the communist movement. And really the, the, you know, I think dispassionate assessment of people who've looked at this crisis of 1956, and it wasn't just in Canada, it was all around the world, major uh, breaks in the British communist movement and the American movement. 
but Canada was this happened in Canada as well. Dispassionate assessment would suggest that the Communist Party never really recovered from this. You know, there were hardliners who hung on. Canada's leading intellectual, Stanley Ryerson, was one of the, the most hardline supporters of Buck and the old regime. Eventually, he would leave the party. For him, uh, the revolt in Czechoslovakia in 1968 was the final straw. Um, but when you would talk to some of these old communists who hung on so long, it was very difficult for them to explain why. Um, but many did leave, and the Communist Party entered the 1960s, which would be a period of, you know, social justice effervescence and youth radicalization. They entered that on very crippled legs. Yeah, could you talk then about the Communist Party through the 1960s up until its crisis at the end of the 80s, about its relationship to that, to the new left and uh, movements since, or the movements that followed that? Yeah, the Communist Party remained, you know, there. Uh, again, I said crippled legs. It, it, its, its impact was less. Its capacity to recruit young uh, and vibrant uh, um, uh, sort of mobilizing radicals in the 60s, very much constrained or curbed. Uh, the new left, after all, uh, defined itself uh, as a new left. It, it, uh, it, it saw the old left of which the Communist Party was the most uh, uh, significant expression as really trapped in ossifications that it wanted to basically, uh, um, you know, transcend. Um, but the Communist Party was nevertheless still a presence. It was a presence in some trade unions, particularly regionalized unions. It remained a presence in British Columbia, in all kinds of unions, but, you know, primarily in, 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 in places like the Fishermen's Union, which it actually controlled. Uh, but it was there in, in some of the construction uh, unions, uh, um, some of the, the, the woodworking unions, although it had been that the, the IW, IWA, the International Woodworkers of America, had been the site of real Cold War battles um, throughout the late 40s and 50s. But it had a presence there. It had a presence, uh, um, you know, in, in uh, uh, across the country and other places. Uh, it was very active in the peace movement which was a very important development that came out of the Cold War and the escalating nuclear arms race between the Soviet Union uh, and the United States. Uh, many peace activists and anti-war activists uh, were uh, members of the Communist Party. Uh, it had a presence in, uh, uh, in the women's movement as well, in, you know, the, um, in various uh, women's organizations. So you, you cannot, again, write the Communist Party off. It still had a presence in larger cities like Toronto and, and less so in Montreal, I think, but where the, the, the national question for Francophones had become part of the, the, the sort of paramount issues that the Soviet Union simply couldn't, you know, wrap its head around and address. Uh, there had been splits in the Communist Party in, 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 in Montreal and in Quebec in general in the 40s, again in 56, and so, again, by the 60s, it was, you know, in some senses, peripheral to the rise of the independence movement that Pierre Valliers and others had been were, were, were associated with. The, the FLQ and uh, the sort of radical uh, nationalist movement that emerged in Quebec uh, had, you know, very little, you know, ties or, or 
to the Communist Party. The new left had very little ties. What, what the new left would emerge, as the new left emerged, and as, as it moved from student radicalism into alliances with workers into you know, developments in the women's movement, uh, again, uh, it would be what were called new communist movements that emerged out of this and that developed most you know, strongly in the, in the 1970s associated with Maoism and Trotskyism. They saw the Soviet Union as a problem in the historical uh, evolution and development of the left uh, in Canada. Uh, and in elsewhere. So the Communist Party is around still, but uh, it is not the force uh, that it once was. And a big part of this, too, is that uh, the luster of the Soviet Union as revolutionary possibility that had been so paramount in 1917 and that lasted for generations had pretty much come off by the 1960s and 70s. I mean, it was no long, it looked to be a sad uh, reflection of actual, what was what we often called actually existing socialism in the time. Um, it, you know, there were still things to defend in the Soviet Union, but uh, it looked to be a pretty, uh, how should I say, threadbare and worn uh, expression of revolutionary transformative possibilities. So, I want to focus on uh, one experience that you were connected to. The, the last time the Communist Party was actually large enough to have real influence in a mass movement was during the solidarity fight back against austerity in British Columbia in 1983, about which you wrote um, the book Solidarity, the Rise and Fall of an Opposition in British Columbia. And I think that experience tells us a lot about the politics of the Communist Party in relation to the certainly the class struggle in Canada. So can you talk about the role of the CP in the in, in that movement in British Columbia? Yeah, well, British Columbia, as I said earlier, was, I would say, the one province and region of Canada where the Communist Party still retained considerable strength in the trade unions. Uh, it controlled unions like uh, the Fisherman, Fisherman's Union, and it was a fundamental force, even in the mainstream BC Federation of Labor, where there was a left caucus that the CP, uh, you know, still exercised considerable influence in. Um, even in municipal electoral politics in a place like Vancouver, the Committee of Progressive Electors, or COPE, uh, was a kind of alliance of left forces of which there were still old communist figures uh, involved. So it was still there on the ground in B.C. Uh, in 1983. And what happened in B.C. in 1983 was uh, it became, because of the leadership of uh, the Social Credit uh, Party in, in, in the government, and its premier, Bill Bennett, it became in some senses a poster boy for neoliberalism's uh, project of austerity and uh, restraint in government spending. Uh, Bennett and the Social Credit uh, Party ran uh, in, I think, a 1982 election and were victorious. And they ran basically on a, on a, on a, on a program of putting into effect the sort of program of Milton Friedman and a lot of these, uh, they were called neoconservatives then, uh, um, uh, um, political economists, who basically said the unions are too powerful, the special interest groups are too powerful. All these uh, people who've been benefiting from welfare, uh, education, health care, uh, um, uh, and uh, minority rights, civil rights kind of activism have to be clamped down on. 
And with the fiscal crisis of the state, which had been unfolding over the course of the 1970s, uh, you know, there was just not the not the revenues, particularly in British Columbia, uh, to uh, uh, sustain that whole post-war settlement of the, you know, you know, after World War II ended, the, the whole uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of funding of, of, of the, the broad social safety net, which included trade union rights, but was also health, welfare, education, et cetera. So the social credit uh, government introduced in 1983, uh, some 32 or 33 pieces of legislation that basically were, they, they were going to gut everything, trade unions, uh, welfare, uh, Native rights, women's rights and entitlements, all of this was going to be basically uh, suppressed. A mass mobilization emerged of resistance to this, which came to be called solidarity. Uh, they sort of drew on the Polish uh, Solidarność movement um, of, the, of, the, of the 1980s. The major, I would, I would say that the two major uh, forces, social groupings or forces behind the original upsurge, which was in the lower mainland in Vancouver, were A, the women's movement, and B, the Communist Party. Um, but what happened was very interesting, was that the Communist Party, as this movement grew, quickly ceded its role of leadership to the traditional labor bureaucracy. They basically threw in the towel once they'd organized it. The women's movement tried to keep both aligned with the trade union leadership, but in some senses critical of and separate from it. Uh, this mobilization, and I was there, I was, I just recently been appointed to teach at Simon Fraser University, and I was very active in the, in, in the movement. Uh, I was in, I lived in New Westminster and I was an active, I was a, alternative delegate to the Solidarity Coalition there. Um, I was part of a, there was a, a fairly large left wing uh, that was still, that was still involved, I would say outside the CP, but that was pushing for, uh, um, you know, concerted action to bring this budget down up to and including, you know, general strikes. Um, and uh, the, the, um, the mobilization was exhilarating. It was probably the largest, uh, you know, social protest uh, movement I've ever been involved in. And and really, uh, living through BC, it lasted about six months. Living through it, you would ha you'd have to say, and even mainstream journalists said this, is that class struggle was now put back on the agenda. It was something you couldn't really ignore. All the trade unions rallied to the cause, um, and. Uh, but the problem was in that situation, when the left is fragmented and weak, uh, which it was, uh, who takes over? The trade union bureaucracy took over. Uh, the fellow named Art Kuby, I had actually worked for him. I taught, you know, uh, labor education at their labor movements, Posh, Harris, and Hot Springs uh, for a while. Um, you know, and I got along okay with art until I began to be critical of the trade union bureaucracy in the midst of this. From then on, whenever he would see me, he would say, hey, Brian, how's the revolution? Uh, you know, a kind of dismissive uh, joke. But what happened was 
the trade union movement was was perfectly willing the trade union bureaucracy was perfectly willing to ride it had to to ride the wave of militant opposition but at the decisive moment when in fact a general strike had been promised by these very same trade union bureaucrats they pulled the plug on it a leading conservative trade unionist jack monroe flew to colona shook hands with uh, bill bennett on his patio and ended a mobilization that had galvanized tens if not hundreds of thousands that had seen huge demonstrations of 80,000, 100,000 in Vancouver on the legislature of Lawn in Victoria that had spread to Kelowna and northern BC into the interior. Uh, really, an amazing movement had the plug pulled on it at literally one minute to midnight. Um, what was the role then of two forces? One, the NDP, and two, the Communist Party. The NDP basically said, well, this is nice what you're doing in the streets, but the real fight is here in the legislature where we've got to defeat this legislation, which of course they didn't do. I remember uh, Dave Barrett, I think was the leader of the NDP at that time. Um, and he spoke at the uh, legislature, at the protest at the Victoria uh, legislature. And he was the last speaker. And he said, well, he said, this has been great. You've made a lot of good speeches. You've been here. You've shown your opposition. Please leave quietly and pick up your garbage. Um, the Communist Party, I subsequently, when writing the book, I interviewed its leader, George Hewison, uh, in Toronto uh, a year or two after. And I questioned him about the role of the Communist Party in, uh, you know, how they turned over the whole movement that they had played a role in starting to this very conservative trade union bureaucracy. And his answer was, and I said, you know, didn't you need to be critical? Didn't you need to tell people what, uh, you know, these, these leaders were going to do? How they were going to basically uh, sell this movement out? No, he said, after after years of practice, we've developed a science of, of appreciation of what you do with, with leaders, and you don't kick the shit out of your leaders in the midst of the movement. Well, uh, unless you do pose those criticisms at the time of the mobilization, how are you going to avoid the disillusionment and despair of people who've basically, uh, um, you know, been decapitated in the midst of their own struggle, a struggle which they created? And, and they were the strength of. But then they relied on leaders uh, to lead them who ended up basically uh, not leading them, but ending their struggle. So it was a pretty uh, sorry denouement. And the left in British Columbia, it took decades for the left to come back from that defeat of 1983. Decades. There's much more we could say, of course, about the Communist Party's history. Uh its relationship to Canadian nationalism would be an interesting question for another time. Um, but uh, I have one last question, which, you know, really is about the situation today where you have, you know, this is obviously a very good thing, more young people being interested in socialist ideas, people looking for organizations to join, but people who are coming to socialist politics, knowing little or nothing about the history of the left and the history of the working class movement. Um, 
and some of those people would be attracted to the, the Communist Party. So I'd just like to wrap up by asking you if you would share, you know, what your thoughts would be. What would you say to people like that, uh, new to socialist politics and considering the Communist Party as an option? Yeah, I, first of all, I would say if you are considering the Communist Party as an option, what you really need to do is study very uh, carefully its history. Actually confront its history and confront the, the Communist Party as it currently exists about its history. Ask them. If you are interested in uh, being involved in left-wing organizations, which is a very good thing, uh, then one thing to do is to try to seek out other alternatives and to actually say to uh, a communist party figure if you're thinking of joining with them say to them well how about a debate between you and this other current or tendency that i've looked at uh, my guess is you won't find much interest in that um but even if you did uh i think what the the, the point is is to look at what has actually been done by communists and actually uh see the positives, but address and assess the negatives. Uh, I don't think we can, we want to throw out uh, the communist uh, baby with the, with the bathwater of Stalinism. Uh, there's much in, uh, and, and these are very uh, difficult to separate these two entities sometimes, but I think it can be done. I would hope that anyone who would be looking at joining the left uh, would actually be uh, interested in rebuilding the left in some senses something something new and fresh has to come out of an experience which has so much of value so much that's positive but also uh so much that is actually very problematic there's no question that you know if if you are a committed revolutionary leftist and you look seriously at stalinism uh and what it did to the communist movement and to communist ideals and to the and to the promise of 1917 it's very difficult not to appreciate how much that experience of stalinization of the world's communist movements soured the idea of socialism in the mouths of millions and has created the possibilities for right wing uh, caricatures of what communism and socialism is to you know have some have some legs right uh so to me, the task right now, when I think the left has never been weaker, uh, and need, is that there needs to be a rebuilding of the left. There needs to be a regroupment of revolutionary forces, which isn't the task of young people. That's the task of older people who've been involved in these left-wing mobilizations. But younger people can then uh, add energy, freshness, uh, and perspective and be, be a part of that rebuilding of the left. Without that rebuilding, which is going to have to confront what the communist movement was, what its possibilities and potential were, why it went off the rails, and how that can be done, uh, how we can preserve all that's great in the communist experience and the, and the ideals of communism, how we can preserve all of that and get past where, uh, you know, communism, uh, the, the, where, the, where the Stalinization of the communist movement sort of went off the rails. Um, so that would be my, um, you know, particular take. And that means taking into account a lot of the social movements that have been on the left, that, that have been aligned in some ways with and a part of communism, but also distinct from it. 
So there's an, there's there's tendencies in anarchism and anarcho-communism that go back to you know the late 19th century that are important to revive. There's aspects of uh, the the early social democratic you know movement and socialist movements that need to be revived, and aspects of the communist movement that were critical of these predecessors and 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 sort of co-conspirators in the anti-capitalist movement uh, that need to be brought together. Um, but you will you will need to learn from communism on both sides of its ledger sheet. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Nice talking. Thanks for listening to Victor's Children. If you want to subscribe, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Positive reviews are helpful, so feel free to leave one. Also, if you think this podcast is useful and know other people who might be interested in it, please let them know. I hope you'll listen again next month.